What is good? asked Nietzsche. What is good? His answer, all that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. What is bad? All that proceeds from weakness. So these authors, Solomon and Higgins, write that what Nietzsche really meant in his militant rants in favor of power was, they say, a soul-searching appreciation for those values that might make life more vigorous and healthy. More than any other philosopher, Nietzsche is renowned for urging that we affirm life. The man who is full of life and power, Nietzsche calls the Übermensch. People always call this the Superman. But it really means the higher man who has raised himself above the underachieving herd who are not truly living. In connection with this Übermensch idea, Nietzsche writes, Quote, the scholarly oxen have suspected me of Darwinism. But Nietzsche says he is not talking about any such thing. Quote, and listen to this, Nietzsche on Darwin. A living thing seeks above all to discharge its strength. Self-preservation is only one of the indirect results. What Nietzsche means by strength and health is something that is fundamentally positive. But what is positive about survival? Survival means that you do not die. Survival is the avoidance of a negative. But what is positive about it? Nothing. Darwin, Nietzsche writes, forgot the spirit that is so English. But then what, according to Nietzsche, is positive about strength or health or life? Life is not mere existence. In the 18th century, Arthur Schopenhauer had come up with the idea of the will to life. He meant by this a motive of self-preservation that explained all beings' continued efforts to stay alive, despite the suffering involved in living. Schopenhauer's will to life, motive of self-preservation that explains the struggle, the will of beings to stay alive, despite the suffering involved in living. Nietzsche came up with the phrase the will to power as a criticism of Schopenhauer's will to life, which was lacking the thing that made life valuable. The will that drives us is a will for more than preservation, for more than mere ongoing existence. It is a seeking of the spirit. The good men of every age, says Nietzsche, are the agriculturists of the spirit. The good men, the agriculturists of the spirit. What Nietzsche means by health and life which is good insofar as it has health is really the power to become something. And in this, Nietzsche comes strangely close to what has been called virtue ethic. Though it is the word close here that is of interest. Solomon and Higgins say, for Nietzsche, a virtue is what is healthy. But what is virtue in the Western tradition? Here are three key elements. The perfection of human power, good works, means subordinate to an ultimate end. Now let me explain what these things are all about. And in support of this, here are two definitions of virtue offered by Thomas Aquinas. First, virtue denotes a certain perfection of a power. 
Virtue denotes a certain perfection of a power. Odd, isn't it, that Nietzsche talks of the will to power? But that was Aquinas that I just read. And second, human virtue is a good habit productive of good works. Again, Aquinas. Human virtue is a good habit productive of good works. So that tells us what the power is power to do. And this perfection and performance is all going somewhere, but we'll come back to the third thing. So the best way to understand the first element of virtue, virtue as a perfection of a power, is to see it in connection with sport. Virtue is fitness for something. The javelin thrower perfects the power to throw the javelin a certain distance. That power is a potential in him, which he makes real. And he perfects that power by practice, which is what Aquinas means by a good habit. The athlete has given himself a power, which is something that he carries around with him. His perfection is a state that he is in. So you could stop him on the street and say, excuse me, could you throw this javelin across the canal for me? And he could do it. Now the word virtue comes from the Latin virtus, which comes from the Greek arete, which is itself more exactly translated as excellence. The athlete has made his body excellent. Virtue, like athletics, is fitness for something. For what? For the work that is yours by virtue of what you truly are. The Olympic sports of ancient Greece were initially conceived around skills of battle. Well, they developed beyond that, as in the long jump. But a good athlete would be a good warrior, good at work that any man might have to do. An athlete then has perfected himself in a role that is his. Any man is a potential warrior in early Greece. An athlete, then, has perfected himself in a role that is his, all athletes were men, he has perfected himself as a man, to some extent. And so in 5th century Athens, the Greek poet Pindar writes in a poem of praise for an athlete, become what you are. Become what you are. You are something, a man with a manly potential, a potential to fight well in battle, a potential to inspire us, but you have not fully become it, become what you are. The best way to understand the second element of virtue, virtue as a good habit, quote Aquinas, productive of good works, is in connection with botany, nature. There is something that you are, you are, say, a date palm, but you have not yet grown a trunk, blossomed, brought forth your fruit, when you do so, we will know that you really are a palm. You will become what you are. By their fruits, you shall know them. Which is to say, know what they are. As for a plant, so for a man. You are a human being. But you have not done all the work of a man. Or a woman, if you are a woman. Virtue is being fit to do that work. Doing it and therefore being what you are. In the Hellenized world of ancient Palestine, the thing that the tree must do to become what it is is called the ergon of the tree. If you are a fig tree, what you must do to become what you are is to become green and bear fruit. 
And so we can connect Aquinas' second definition about work with his first one about perfection. A fig tree that is green, thriving, full of figs, is a perfected fig tree doing its work. The woman who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, relieved the afflicted, according to 1 Timothy 5.10, is herself. She is not just doing good or doing good things. Those are two translations. Um, the Revised Standard Version, doing good. God's Word says doing good things. She is not just doing good or doing good things. Things that she can choose to do if she wants. Options. Do you have to do a good deed right now? No. Options. If I drop this remote, somebody will know that pick it up for me. There will be a reason to do a good deed. Do you have to do a good deed now? No. We're not talking about good deeds. These are the works, the erga, that are hers to do, the woman in 1 Timothy 5.10, by virtue of what she really is. The New Testament phrase, good work, in that verse, it's ergo agatho, good work, means the job, ergon, that is yours, the way the grape producing is the vine. Optional. The vine that does not bring forth grapes is bad. But not in the sense of misbehaving, in the sense of failure, rather, to become what it is. Thus, in a way, deficient in being. It's not just what she has done, but what she is that matters. She has done the works that are the signs of being what God put here on earth to become. This woman is flourishing like a fig tree full of figs. She's full of life. She's carrying forward God's act of creation and not letting die. And Paul's rather startling remark in verse 6 now makes perfect sense. She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. To do the work that is ours, that is what it means to be good. Agathon. The other part of good work. Ergo agathon. To do the work that is ours, that's what it means to be good. And the Bible again and again compares us to trees to make this point. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If we do the work that we are meant to do, if we accept our ergon, the work or job of things like us, then we will do the will of God. And finally, the third feature of virtue. Notice the means and relation in this. Anything that is good is so for supporting this ultimately good thing being what it was created by God to be. It is good for the palm and the man to be the thing that God made them to be. And it is good to be the means of something becoming what it is. That's why an action or a story or an idea is good. These are good insofar as they are means of something becoming what it is. The people who have that idea, use that idea, read that story, perform that action. And this is the nature of all good, according to our tradition, this tradition of virtue. All good. Good is applied to creatures, human acts, man-made objects, states of affairs, either being what God made them to be or helping or facilitating in that process. Water is good. 
both because God made it and because it helps plants and people to flourish and become what they are. So both reasons, two reasons. Health is good because it helps the creature who has it to flourish and become what God made that creature to be. And we sometimes think of health as a good in itself. We may think we want health for its own sake, but we don't really. Illness takes away our freedom. Our freedom to enjoy life, to work, to be productive, to have patience, and so forth. All of that, work, productivity, kindness, etc., is a part of our job here on this earth, our ergon, and health is the condition of body that helps us to bear fruit, helps us to do that job, the job of, say, caring for children. If you don't have health, some aspect of health, maybe you can't have children, then your ergon changes. There's certainly something else for you to do, other fruit for you to bear. But the one thing that I want to point out here is that the end, being what we are, is higher than the means. Health, for example. And the means derives its goodness from facilitating what is higher. What that means is that health and virtue, these are two states, respectively, of body and soul. Health and virtue are secondary concepts. Health and virtue are secondary. Secondary to what? To an understanding of the higher human purpose, becoming what we truly are. Health and virtue are both good insofar as they are means to that end. Health and virtue are analogous in that both are means to the end of becoming what we truly are. Now, I'm sure you, you see that this is not really how we think of virtue today. Today, virtue is the performance of virtuous acts, which takes the spotlight off what we are and casts it onto what we do. Now, that's typical of the technological age that we're in. And that simple change takes the spotlight off what we are and casts it onto what we do. It marks a fundamental redefinition of the concept. Historically, actually, virtue has changed its meaning to free us up, really, you could say, so that we can say, I've done a good thing, I'm virtuous, now I can relax, get back to ordinary life. The change in the meaning of virtue has allowed us to divide life up into virtue time and regular living. But from the ancient perspective, that is a fatal mistake. A division of our lives into time being ourselves and time being something else, other than ourselves. Therefore, really, dead. Let me give you an illustration of that from the classics. In the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus is trapped for seven years on an island with the divine Calypso, that goddess most divinely made, according to Homer, who shares her bed with him and promises him everlasting life, if he will stay with her. Everlasting life. She's a goddess who can be so that. But Odysseus refuses. Why? Because what Calypso had for seven years been doing, really, was murdering Odysseus. What was Odysseus? He was head of a household, a husband, a father, a king, a warrior, etc. His work, fruits, and life 
stemmed from that nature, to hold him captive, so that for seven years he was capable of no act in accordance with what he was. The only act that he could perform in accord with that identity was to escape that island and put himself back into his life. And he was utterly unable to do that when he was under the power of a goddess. To keep Odysseus on that island was to cancel Odysseus out, to turn him into a kind of ghost, a kind of living non-Odysseus. And that's really how both the Greeks and the Jews uh, conceived of the afterlife. You're still living, but you're unable to do anything related to your life. You sit there. Calypso offers him everlasting life, but from Odysseus' viewpoint, I think we have to see the word life in that offer in quotation marks. Well, that's morality. Being what you are. A man I know who's been training for the pastorate recently said to me, life isn't always about morality. And I understood what he meant, and I even said yes to him. But I regretted it afterward, because that is really a mistaken view of what morality is. Morality is becoming ourselves. And could we ever say, life isn't always about being what we are, what God made us to be? If I'm not doing that, then what kind of life am I talking about? That is virtue as the Western tradition came to understand it, thanks to people like Aristotle and Aquinas. And then in the centuries that followed, that understanding of life was discarded, thrown out. The terminology remained, and we can see the connection with taboo system. Terminology remained, good and evil, virtue, works. But the meaning of every term was fabricated anew. McIntyre puts it like this. A moral tradition of which Aristotle's thought was the intellectual core was repudiated during the transitions from the 15th to 17th century. Only just the Enlightenment. Started in the Renaissance, and he says, maybe even the late Middle Ages. It was whittled away to nothing. And because of it, because now there was a hole in the culture, the Enlightenment project of discovering new rational secular foundations for morality had to be undertaken. So the new rationales for right and wrong that were dreamed up by a succession of modern philosophers from Kant to Mill et Alii, and now I want to return to Nietzsche. Nietzsche has the same definition of virtue, unlike Hume, Kant, and Mill, who have all turned completely and explicitly away from the traditional view of ethics. For Nietzsche, as for the ancient world, health or virtue, Nietzsche means more than bodily health, is precisely what is conducive to flourishing. We can sum up the ancient view by saying that a virtuous person has a kind of soul in the way that an athlete has a kind of body. What kind? The kind, said Aquinas, that is productive of good works. And there's that phrase, good works, again, which Aquinas took from the Greek New Testament. In the episode of the perfume, Judged Wasted, for example, Jesus says that Mary has done a good work. The word for work here again is ergon, which in Greek is not just some act that we choose to perform. The ergon is the work that is ours according to what we truly are, according to our nature. Ours whether we might agree to choose it or not. And if we don't, we don't become what we are. Become the plant God made us to be. We are not a good vine in the sense of being a real one. We are playing with nothingness. 
So what we've just looked at gives us the complete picture of ethics. Here you have the house of morality, so to speak, which is not about good deeds now and then, but about being all the time. You have the foundation at the bottom, which is a correct picture of fulfilled human nature and the work of the human being. On that basis, we can establish the nature of human virtues, which are the various perfections that enable or equip us, to the extent that we can equip ourselves, to do the work of the human being. And so, empowered by virtue, the specific acts that are in accord with our nature, then, by God's grace, become possible. Virtue is really a way of employing or not obstructing the grace by which God makes good acts happen. Receive not the grace of God in vain, says Paul. Second Corinthians says. So it's this foundation at the bottom that is the key. Everything is developed from that. What is a leafy, fruit-bearing man? Everything stems from this. We do not just want an ethics based on virtue. Virtue is secondary. Don't be too impressed by talk about virtue. Public schools and utilitarians and Machiavelli and Robespierre all talk about virtue. What matters is the picture of flourishing to which any virtues are the means. Who is the perfected man? The virtues we want, the virtues that are virtues, are the ones that make us like that. The key thing is the right picture of perfection, the foundation, the rock on which ethics is built. So the term, in and of itself, the term virtue ethics, I think you can see, is essentially meaningless. Because virtue simply means the capacity to become something, as in the ordinary phrase, by virtue of. So all the term virtue ethics really says is capability ethics. To say I stand for virtue ethics is to say I stand for the capacity to become something. But what? That's the question. And this is where the trouble with Nietzsche arises. What is a leafy, fruit-bearing man? Or a blighted man? There are pictures of these fruits, these conditions, on every page of the Bible. That's how we answer the question. What picture do we have of the flourishing and blighted man? Plus, history. The whole history of the Church, including St. Francis, St. Thomas, Blaise Pascal, William Law, missionaries, people we know personally, plus fiction. Who are your heroes? Take the stories of Homer, Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Wendell Berry, Annie Dillard. Now, let's ask what, for Nietzsche, is a leafy, fruit-bearing man. And there are pictures of these fruits, these conditions, on many of the pages of Nietzsche's collected works. A blighted, unhealthy man is a man who shows a lack of reverence for something. A lack of reverence for the Greeks, Mozart, Goethe, Schiller. A blighted, unhealthy man is a man who turns against pleasure, Nietzsche says. One of the things he dislikes about Christianity. 
why he calls Christianity sick, because it turns against this natural and good thing, pleasure. But Nietzsche does not absolutize pleasure. He's already mocked the English utilitarians for doing that. For Nietzsche, pleasure is sometimes negative. Mozart didn't have to be poor. But to enjoy the pleasure of wealth, he would have had to write to popular taste. So his suffering, his lack of pleasure, was healthful and good, says Nietzsche. Mozart's sacrifice for his art was a sign of health. What is healthy, then, is what is conducive to beauty. And in Nietzsche's ethics, the perfect man, the fruit-bearing man, is often a man either with fruits like Mozart's or the man with ears to hear them, while the cultural Philistine is an anti-hero. A healthy man is a man with intellectual integrity who faces up to the truth say, the emptiness of Kant's or Hume's morality. A man like Nietzsche, really. And what strikes me most about Nietzsche's flourishing man is how perfect a portrait of Nietzsche it is. Now, I don't say Nietzsche idolized himself. I mean, it's good if we are like the heroes that we believe in. But Nietzsche's leafy, fruit-bearing man is really a man with very few perfections. He has the ability to produce or to enjoy the works of Mozart, Homer, Sophocles, Shakespeare. But he is a man that very few people are likely to become. They will neither write the Odyssey nor wish to read it. Which means that Nietzsche is blind to the beauties of the mothers and colleagues and Alzheimer's victims we know. And blind to the vices he cannot identify in himself. For me, any man who formulates an ethics that does not include a damning self-portrait has failed to formulate a credible ethics of human beings. That I take to be a positive requirement of success. The difference between Nietzschean ethics and the classically informed ethics of Aquinas and MacIntyre is in the foundation of the house. The fruits that you see in the botany textbook of Nietzsche's Übermensch are very few beside the fruits that you see in the Judeo-Christian tradition. For some reason, Nietzsche was unable to value these, or was unable to acknowledge that he did. Does Nietzsche really admire only the creative artists, only himself? He writes, what is it that constitutes the history of each day for you? Look at the habits of which your day consists. Are they the product of numberless little acts of cowardice and laziness, or of your bravery? But there's one point that I do not want to miss here about Nietzsche. I want you to notice that Nietzsche's ethics, narrow as it may be, is not subjective. Nietzsche does not think that it is just his opinion that Mozart and Homer and Shakespeare are great. Nietzsche sometimes sounds as if the individual is sovereign over right and wrong. He just chooses what is right and what is wrong. He says... If there's nothing to morality but expressions of will, my morality can only be what my will creates. I myself must now bring into existence new tables of what is good, new standards to come from me. But all of these standards, Nietzsche shows us, are recognized, not fabricated. He talks as if he fabricates them, but whenever he talks about the things that he recognizes, they're always things that he has no choice in making. They're always greater than him. They are standards like beauty and compassion to which Nietzsche submits in helpless adoration as he insists. That's why I said that for Nietzsche the standard by which to judge remains 
holiness. Nothing that you make yourself is ever holy. And the holiness of, say, a child is precisely what tells you you did not make that thing. What Nietzsche meant by the sacred seriousness of art, for example, was not something he projects onto it, but something extraordinary that he sees it has. When Nietzsche writes, egoism shall be our God, he is mocking those who think that way. So the will to power is not the assertion of my life, because my life has no worth unless it's healthy, a striving towards something that is objectively good. Nietzsche talks as if he were a self-creator, but whenever he talks about what we are to make ourselves into, he turns into a lover, a man of reverence, those are his own words. One thing Nietzsche never says about his pantheon of, of great men is there's no correct interpretation of what's great. The winning interpretation is just the one that sways the most people. He despises that view. The interpretation of greatness that has won over the European masses is not a winning interpretation at all. People, Nietzsche said everything is interpretation, but he didn't say it's all equal. So why is the interpretation of greatness that has won over the European masses not a winning interpretation? Because it is base. It elevates to the status of great what is entirely mediocre and bad. The century is ruled, Nietzsche says, by the cultural Philistine who has come to dominate 19th century culture, who is the antithesis of a son of the muses, of the artist, of the man of genuine culture. For Nietzsche, as for every person, there is a bottom-line goodness that is not negotiable. It just so happens that people have varying capacities to see the inherent goodness of all that is good. We all see some of it. Nobody but God sees it all. Now I say that it's surprising that Nietzsche's ethics is not subjective because Nietzsche is supposedly the historical poster boy for subjectivism. Solomon and Higgins write, In recent years, Nietzsche has been widely interpreted and celebrated as a postmodernist, or at least as the single most important precursor of 20th century postmodernism. True, Nietzsche adopted a critical, perhaps even deconstructive stance, but only in order to promulgate a more vigorous, positive philosophy. Nietzsche was a relativist, is rumor number 22, but he quite obviously wasn't. He valued Shakespeare, even to the extreme of reading him, most people do not value Shakespeare. He never said that it's all just a matter of values. And yet, Nietzsche is in fact the originator of the word value. Nietzsche is apparently the first person in history to use the word values. What are values? Values are subjective valuations. I value this, you value that, and these valuations represent our differing values, and that's all there is to it. Well, people have always valued things, but it was only very recently that anybody thought that they had values in the sense that you see here, with this last line added at the bottom. How recently? Only recently people thought they had values. Well, I hope the following information shocks you. The 20-volume Oxford English Dictionary, which we have, had no entry for the word values until the 1986 supplement, which located the earliest use of the English word values 
in a work of sociology published in 1918. Uh, mark the page, you're not going to believe me, you look it up and you'll see. There it is. Values, plural. First entry is 1918. Most English words go back, you know, 1500s, 1400s, and older. No entry for the word value. The 1986 supplement was not even listed. What the heck is what you want to say? Ethics today is called the philosophy of values. Values is the basis of our current understanding of ethics. Is our ethical system based on an innovation? What is going on? Gertrude Hibbelfarb, an historian of the 19th century, says that the word values seems to come from Nietzsche in the 1880s, but it was absorbed unconsciously, she writes, and without resistance into the ethos of modern society. The word values brought with it four assumptions, she says, that all moral ideas are subjective and relative, that they are mere customs and conventions, all moral ideas, that they have a purely instrumental utilitarian purpose, and that they are peculiar to specific individuals and societies. That is our understanding. That's our concept of value. For this concept to be absorbed without resistance, Western culture must have wanted it. Perhaps Nietzsche is now the most often cited philosopher in the Western tradition because he is thought to be the great theorist of these proposals, but he did not, to my knowledge, make any one of them. Why? Because his understanding of morals, even if he said uh, we should go beyond good and evil, is the classical understanding, which this is exactly not. First, what Nietzsche recognized to be great is not subjective, but objective. Second, goodness is not, therefore, a human custom. It exists on its own. Third, a thing is not good because of any consequences. We recognize its goodness here and now in the music of Bach itself. Fourth, the recognition of goodness is not something peculiar to different societies. Seeing what is great is certainly a matter of ability and inability or health and sickness. Well, that's exactly what Augustine said. You need to be made good to see good and fixed up to see better. And you can get anywhere from anywhere. There is hope. But Nietzsche does not accept what you see here. When Nietzsche said that good and evil in the Europe of his day are just empty subjective valuations, he was not saying that that makes them fine. On the contrary, he said that makes them worthy of contempt. They have to be more than that. They have to be weighed against some conception of human life of flourishing health, and that is largely what these assumptions reject. The assumption that all moral ideas are subjective and relative denies that good and evil are tied to anything that is given the way the nature of the palm tree is given. The whole point is to leave it open. The assumption that all moral ideas are mere customs and conventions says explicitly that morality has to do with culture, not nature. And as Greg Bloomquist said this morning, culture changes, so no one is locked in by culture. The concept of values that is the core of our culture's understanding of ethics is, in my view, not derived from Nietzsche. Nietzsche furnished a word that was very useful to the bourgeois culture that Nietzsche despised, precisely because of its egoism. It sensed that I, whatever I am, Whatever I appreciate, whatever I like to do, am as good as everyone else. 
Nietzsche saw this in the self-satisfied culture of the 19th century and was disgusted by it. Values in the fourfold sense we see here is a very useful word to the culture that Nietzsche despised, which I think has more to do with the capacity for self-indulgence that Western life made possible than with the philosophy of Nietzsche. To finish, the last thing I wish uh, to return to is those questions I asked way back at the start. Can't you do what is right and practice your professions and not be interfered with? And does history offer you any help here? How are you going to argue out of your way any one of those challengers urging you to respect the values of others? The help that the 19th century history of ethics offers, I'm suggesting, is twofold. First, you have to support you the example, in Nietzsche, of a bold rejection of Kantianism, utilitarianism, and the whole legacy of feebleness in the Enlightenment attempt to redo the basis for calling something right or wrong. Only Nietzsche saw through all this. Everybody else thought they could fix the problems with Kant or whomever by some new principle or some tinkering of their own, thus utilitarianism, for example. But Nietzsche saw through it all. If people don't want to hear your biblical arguments, or don't want to hear any Alistair MacIntyre, another Christian, throw Nietzsche at them. Tell them that you agree with Nietzsche, that the Enlightenment and its aftermath is bankrupt in its understanding of morals. Second, you have as another kind of backing and support your involvement with health. I think you have a unique advantage here over the rest of us. Tell the people who require you to respect the values of others that the issue of ethics is not values, but, and I would recommend that you not say here right and wrong, because that's what these people expect you to say, and they have barred the gate to you there. Say that the issue of ethics is not values, but life. What is right and good is what preserves life in the fullest sense. And then say, yes, we're not all in agreement about what it means to be fully alive and fully what we are. You have your own ideas about what it means to be fully living and embracing all that life has to offer. And, well, I have mine. And I really believe in mine as much as you believe in yours. And because I cared about life in that fullest sense that I went into medicine in the first place. And tell me if that's not true. You value what a person who is healthy can do. Is that not why you want them to be well? And then say, you are asking me to compromise the very heart of my practice. Everything that I think is good is about that wellness. Realizing that potential, living as the creatures that we are. Now, you may not agree with that last line yet. You may have to think that through a while. Everything, everything that is good has to do with that wellness, realizing the potential of a human being, living as the creatures that we are. But that is what the Western tradition of ethics, before the shambles of the modern age and after it in Nietzsche, allows you to say. Everything that is good and right is about being well. Everything. Everything that is good and right is about life living fully as the creatures that we really are.